0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Constance Hunter. She is the chief economist at accounting and consulting giant KPMG. She's also a fishing buddy. I've spent some time with her up in Maine at Camp Kotak discussing all manner of things. She has a really interesting and fascinating career path. Not the typical economist. She started on the buy side uh, as a trader and fund manager, eventually uh, did some work managing alternative investments before she ended up as chief economist at, at KPMG. This is a really interesting conversation. I expect you will find it intriguing. With no further ado, my conversation with Constance Hunter. My guest today is Constance Hunter. She has been chief economist at KPMG since 2013. Previously, she was the deputy chief investment officer for fixed income at AXA Investment Managers, where she joined after 15 years on the buy side, investing globally in fixed income, equities, and foreign exchange. She is a member of the New York Association of Business Economics and 100 Women in Finance. She also participates in the National Committee for U.S.-China Relations, working on Track 2 Economic Dialogues. She earned her master's degree uh, in International Affairs at Columbia. Constance Hunter, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Barry, it's so good to be
0: here. So Constance, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you find your way into finance? So, a couple of ways.
1: Uh, First, my my father uh, worked for an investment bank in Philadelphia, and so there was investing going on in my family.
0: That's where you grew up?
1: I grew up in Philadelphia.
0: And, and then how did you manage to make your way to, to Manhattan?
1: Well, I went to NYU. Mm-hmm. But the other influence that got me into finance, my very good friend's father, Dan Giovanni, was an avid reader. Mm-hmm. And so he was reading a book called The Coming Economic War with Japan. And I was I don't know, this was the early eighties, I was in high school and
0: let me just let me just set the scene a little bit. The Japanese are dominating exports, they're buying Rockefeller Center. They're going to take over America. Take
1: over America. A little bit like China today, but That's we'll get right. back to that. Uh, so I, I remember he's reading this book, The Coming Economic War with Japan, and the whole concept of an economic war seemed fascinating to me. And I was, I don't know, 14 or 15. And so he ended up telling me about the book, and I borrowed it, and I read it. I don't, you know, how much of it went over my head, but it, I was hooked. I was hooked that i not only on finance, but on international finance.
0: You end up at NYU. Was there a business or international relations in the undergraduate? So
1: I did um, liberal arts. So I have a B.A. in economics. Uh, and I felt that that was important. I wanted to have that broad philosophical grounding that a good liberal arts degree gives you mm-hmm. um, in being able to think and being, being able to understand uh, Sort of history of Western thought, uh, reading all of the great books. That's I think a good grounding for someone who's going to spend their career thinking.
0: Right. And
1: so, um, so that was my my undergraduate degree was in economics.
0: And then you um, go to Columbia for a master's in international relations or master of
1: international. In, in, so it's a. School of International and Public Affairs. Uh-huh. So my degree is a Master of International Affairs, but I focused on economics and international economics. And so I had professors like Jagdish Bhagwati and Arminio Fraga, who was an um, adjunct professor when he was at Soros and then later went on to become the um, head of the Central Bank of Brazil, for example.
0: So world-famous um, faculty, yes. to, to say the very least. So you, you come out with this international relations graduate degree how does that translate to a career on wall street
1: so interestingly enough i was interviewing at chase manhattan bank so pre-chemical bank merger
0: i my oh, inter- god so you're talking
1: 1994 all right 1994 i'm in early ni- late 93 early 1994 i'm interviewing at chase and they were recruiting for the private bank mm-hmm. and i wasn't terribly interested in that um i was also interviewing at a banker's trust if anybody we go back in time and remember Bankers Trust for an auto analyst position. So very heavily on economics. International affairs is important. There's obviously trade component to that. So I'm there interviewing at the private bank and I see this research piece. And it's a daily foreign exchange update on what happened overnight and what's going on with the currencies. And like it was one – sentence maybe two sentences about every single economy in a font that i couldn't read today to save my life (laughs) and and i saw this and i thought this is what i want to do i want to do this and so i networked my way to the to the foreign exchange department and the person who was responsible for this and it turns out they were hiring and and so that person's name is chris Igo, who was also i worked with him at axa later in my career and um he had interviewed phd economists who would say well there's a perfect information and there's no foreign exchange markets or you know that you can't make any extra money why forecast them it's all the information is already in the price and here i was coming in looking at the economics and the politics and and how they all interplayed with one another to impact the foreign exchange market so it was really the perfect first job out of graduate school for me
0: And it's funny, the two of us are both sitting here holding reading glasses in our hands, and you're talking about uh, fonts. Let me mix this up a little bit with you. McKinsey just came out with a study that said by the year 2030, uh, almost a million jobs will have been replaced by and with technology. What does that tell you about what's going on in the labor market these days?
1: Okay, so let's put this in a big context. The U.S. labor market is how many people?
0: 155 million people?
1: 48, 150, exactly. So this is, percentage-wise, a small percentage of total jobs. It sounds big, right? It's a little Austin Powers. One million jobs are going right. to disappear, right? But, but the reality is, first of all, it's, let's so contextualize it in terms of the whole labor market. There's two other things that need to be highlighted when thinking about this issue, and we're actually working on some research on this, which I can tell you about in more detail. But the first thing is they don't talk about what new jobs are going to be created. And that's a really important thing to think about. They also don't talk about the areas where labor shortages and pending labor shortages intersect with the technology. So let me give you one example is the trucking industry and and long-haul trucking. It's widely anticipated we're going to have self-driving trucks. And while they aren't necessarily, we're not necessarily going to have the robotics to do the loading of the truck, the unloading of the truck, the bringing of the goods into the home or the store. eventually, who knows? Eventually, who knows? We're making progress in robotics. But just the driving part is certainly something, um, and the long-haul driving part is something that could be automated. Young people don't want to do this job. It's a very old industry. And And, you know, you can't be on your little dopamine-giving device all day when that is your job, uh, when you're driving a truck. And so if we had a self-driving truck, that could really help an industry that has had to continue to raise wages to get people to even consider working in that field. It's not something people want to do anymore. And that we're talking about right there. It's It's a profession that has two and a half million people. So there's there's a match that that's happening in some cases where the disappearing of these jobs is a good thing. The second thing that they don't talk about um, is the number of new jobs that could appear. So
0: someone's got to design and build all those robotics. Well,
1: and interestingly enough, Program. right now there are more people being employed in in artificial intelligence. And um, robotics than than people that are being – than jobs that are being destroyed. Now, I'm not saying that's going to go on forever. But if we look back historically to when we had guilds, when artisans produced things, where it took one guy a month to produce, let's say, an axe – Right. And he produced all parts of that axe. Then we moved away from artisans and we had factories and you had one guy producing the handle and one do- guy producing the top part of the, the metal part of the axe. And then you had then you had multiple people working in this factory and you could produce you could have 15 people producing 100 axes in a month. Right, That's a representative example. Mm-hmm. Those aren't the exact numbers. But the point being that you cre- actually created more jobs because the, th- the thing that you're producing became less expensive. But you created new types of jobs. So the idea of a clerical worker... That didn't exist, right? right? You That if that role of clerical worker, people to do the accounting, people to do HR management, people to do building management, all that kind of stuff evolved after we had corporate structure, which we couldn't have until we had specialized jobs. So my suspicion is that we will have new jobs that evolve as a result of the technology that we're building now.
0: Let's jump right into where we are in the modern economy from the perspective of a, a big accounting and consulting firm, they, they split the two pieces into different groups. Is that right? So
1: we have some regulatory requirements mm-hmm. uh, that that create Chinese walls, and we there are a long list of advisory services that we cannot offer to our audit clients. Right. Um, but this is a great business model because it, it diversifies our business. We have audit and tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have our entire advisory business, which is very diverse. So we do things like data and analytics. We do things. We have an entire business called People and Change, which when you think about what is happening in the labor force and the way technology is impacting firms and how they're managing for that, how they're retraining their workers, um, that's, a, that's a huge practice for us, for example. So you, And, of course, risk, compliance, all that other stuff that you stuff. would traditionally expect someone like KPMG to do.
0: So you originally were on the buy side. You were an investor in fixed income and alternative investments. How has that colored how you see uh, the world of economics, whether it's for um, an audit-slash-consulting firm or anyone else? What does coming from the buy side do to your economic perspective?
1: Well— for me, I think it's critical to my edge, and and that is that I I've spent most of my career using economics to make investment decisions and put money on the line. So that sort of classic uh, saying, I'd love to find a one-handed economist, right? You're on the, the one one-handed hand, economist. On the other hand, um, and and certainly that that discipline I think is very important, and I think the other thing that it really um, And that's sort of a chicken and egg thing. I noticed this about myself when I was at Chase. I noticed that I had an ability to do pattern recognition and see when there might be opportunities in the market as a result of either shifting market data or shifting economic data Mm -hmm. and matching those two together and doing analysis on them. So because I had this ability to see inflection points, it pushed me from the sell side at Chase into the buy side. And while I was at On the buy side that's really where I had my edge and coming back into doing applied economics or business economics I think when I go speak with either the leaders of our firm our clients when I write research it's all oriented towards what is the inflection point we need to be paying attention to and how do you make money off of this inflection point
0: so let's address that precise topic where are we in the economic cycle today and where do you see the next inflection point coming, both in terms of sectors or chronology?
1: Yeah. So we're in the happy part of the cycle. <laughs> <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the end of the cycle, probably. Although with that said, I firmly believe uh, expansions don't die of old age, mm-hmm. right? They need to bump into something. And so we have had consecutive months, and this consecutive is really important, consecutive months of jobs growth, if you look back over previous recoveries, that is a streak that is 75% longer than the previous record. Wow. So even though... People aren't necessarily happy about the, the jobs mix that we have in the economy right. right now. That is still an unprecedented statistic, and it has allowed consumers to really uh, feel very confident. We see that in the consumer confidence data. The consumer has been the backbone of the recovery. We haven't had as much investment, for example, as in previous recoveries. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's helping us sort of continue that consumption uh, boom, but it's, it's well-founded. Household balance sheets are fairly healthy. Right? We haven't, um, in fact, because of the crisis, we actually had a bit of a decline in, in uh, debt for households, mostly in the, in the um, housing sector. But it's allowed us to have sort of a balanced recovery for the most part. And so in terms of inflection points, at some point, I know people have been watching and waiting for this, I expect we're going to see some wage increases. And we're seeing significant shortages in a very important sector, and that is the construction sector. So the Associated General Contractors does a survey, and there are a number of categories where over 70% of their respondents say they cannot find qualified workers and that they have to go ahead and and raise wages.
0: How much of that is related to the fact that during the financial crisis and during the housing collapse, a huge number of immigrants who were actually contractors, builders, electricians, plumbers, et cetera all went home, went back to Mexico or wherever, because the jobs weren't here. And so you created this void. The economy created this void in that segment of the labor force.
1: So we lost about a million and a half construction jobs. Wow. And some of them were filled by immigrants. Some of them were filled by native-born individuals. And a lot of people started to do new things. They mm-hmm. had to pivot to new careers, and they haven't been drawn back into the construction sector. Um, another thing that we had during the housing boom is we had people forego higher education and just leave high school and go start doing construction because it was a career where you could make a fair amount of money right. towards the end of the boom. And and so those people, a lot of them, went back to university after the crisis and then retooled themselves. If we get frothy enough again, if the if the – uh, price of labor goes up enough, you will draw people into that sector. The issue, of course, is that they won't have the skills, right? So some of these some of these jobs are, are medium-skilled jobs that you need to learn how to do a specialty, we're, whether we're talking about electricians, plumbers, um, carpenters. So you, you can't just walk into that
0: job. Now that we're 10 years past the financial crisis, are things beginning to normalize in the world of economics.
1: Yes, in a way. There's still a big mystery. So even though I expect some of the labor shortage data that we're seeing, whether it's National Federation of Independent Business or this Associated General Contractors, some of this labor shortage I expect to eventually translate into wage increases. But I'll tell you, the Fed has been waiting for this for a long time. We have all been waiting for this for a long time. And there is some slack in the labor market that still. Still, that that is um, confusing. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Most people that have been out of the labor force for a period of time, they're not setting wages, right? right? They're not the most desirable people to hire. They've had skills atrophy. They come back in generally if they come back in at a lower wage. And it's not – we've had a, a pickup in the participation rate. Right. But not to the point where you would really expect this portion of the labor force to be influencing wages. And so it is perplexing to me it is perplexing to the fed um janet yellen has called the lack of inflation a mystery so we have normalized in some ways but in this aspect of prices and whether um it re- and and specifically related to wages we have we don't seem to have normalized although maybe we're all just misunderstanding the slack that's out there or perhaps we're on a tipping point of higher wages, which I think in certain sectors is an absolute given.
0: You've had a a number of pretty high-profile jobs in the world of finance. Does this tell us anything about women in finance? We know women have been—let me mansplain to you women in finance. do that. That, I'm very (laughs) interested in what you have to say. (laughs) Well, we know that women have not been promoted. There aren't as many women on the board level, at the C-level— Uh, uh, managing assets, etc. It's uh, disproportionately uh, a boys club, although there are signs that that's starting to change. Tell us a little bit about your career path and what it was like being a woman in in a world where these were, for a long time, traditionally male jobs.
1: Well, I would say that I'm still in a very male-dominated industry Mm -hmm. in general. Now, at KPMG, we have a goal of having 25% of our partners be women by 2020, and we're at 20.5% now. Mm-hmm. So compared to Wall Street, that yeah. is a, definitely a better environment. And our CEO is a woman. We Oh, uh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, Lynn Duddy is a woman. She's mm-hmm. fabulous. She happens to be a woman. She's a fabulous CEO. And, um, and so we've made a concerted effort and the reason that's important and the reason i think that it's taken so long in places like wall street that are male dominated is that there's a natural in-group bias right so we
0: tend to hire people who look like us and
1: who who act like us and share the same interests and and so it's it's understandable, and it, it pervades everything. It pervades the the recruiting practices. Mm-hmm. It also pervades what when you look at young women and they look out. Well, what do I want to be when I grow up? Now, I was lucky. I had my father was in finance, so he never had a bias that I shouldn't be in finance. In fact, he probably had a bias that I should be in finance. Right. right? So, so that I think gave me um, an edge and a and a unique. Perspective and approach that I never thought it was odd that I would be in finance or that I would be very successful in finance
0: Michelle Myers, who's one of the senior economists at Merrill Lynch specifically said at in the current environment there are now women who are role models whether it's Muriel yes. Siebert or uh, Lizanne Saunders at Schwab or there's a whole run of different absolutely women and- you can name But go back a generation, there really weren't a whole lot of role models for women who wanted to go to Wall Street. Well, let's
1: focus on this because this issue of role models is really important. And it's one of the things that's going to propel more women. And it's one of the reasons where you need a certain critical mass. Because if you were just the token woman – you don't get really, from a firm perspective, you don't get necessarily all of the diversifying effects and all of the beneficial effects of having a more diverse perspective in your workplace. But once you hit a critical mass, let's say it's 20%, 25%, you start to have a very different um, type of conversation around certain things. Your marketing appeals to a broader segment of the purchasing population. Uh, You just... um, you tend to have less fraud. There are all sorts of definite advantages to having a greater mix of men and women in an organization.
0: So since you've joined the world of finance, what improvements have been made towards achieving a better balance of of male to females um, in the workplace?
1: So Certainly, in the field of business economics, now it's different in academic economics. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to join the National Association for Business Economics as a young economist. And NABE, as it's called for short, has always had women leaders within the organization. So we had. Women presidents of NAB, people like Maureen Haver, who founded Haver Analytics. Oh sure. uh, Diane Swank, when she was the chief economist at Mesereau. Uh Ellen Hughes Cromwick, who used to be the chief economist at Ford. Uh, you know, I could I could list more
0: on and on, right?
1: Sure. And so that I saw these women who were chief economists as role models, and that and I saw women attending our meetings. Um, now. When I have – I have a young woman on my team who you, who I brought in to – I said, you have to start at NABE young. You're going to learn so much. It'll be great. And to me, uh, coming from Wall Street, I thought, well, NAIB is great because we probably have in the membership about 30 percent women and in leadership probably about 40 percent women. So people on the board of NABE, people who are presidents of NAIB. And she's like, no, it's still all men. She sees all men. Whereas I see, oh my gosh, that's so much improvement.
0: Because of and your in, frame of reference. Because of, of my you grew frame of reference. In, right. So this
1: makes me excited for a couple of reasons. One, I got to see progress. Two, it's obviously not 50 50 yet. And the next generation is going to make that happen. The,
0: the fact that it's 40% women, they look at it as, oh, this isn't remotely what it should Maybe be. Maybe it's
1: 35. All right. But, but still, compared not to what it was 50/50. 10 or 20
0: years ago, it's miles ahead. And the fact that it's looked at as, oh, they're not getting this done, is pretty, that's pretty amazing.
1: So we now have men who are feminists and, and mainstream men, people like Justin Trudeau, who's the prime minister of Canada, right? And now I've heard, I've heard more and more men say, I'm a feminist. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, is that it takes both men and women to make this happen. It takes us working together. This isn't just a woman's cause. And it's not even just a men of da- men who are fathers of daughters cause, mm-hmm. right? It benefits everybody. And so the more men that can get out there and say, yeah, I'm also a feminist, it benefits them. It benefits them financially. It benefits them socially. And we're starting to see that more and more.
0: Let me ask you a question that will give the compliance people at KPMG a heart attack. Since you, you brought up uh, Trudeau in Canada, I am absolutely fascinated by the concept that Canada will become the first G7 country that's going to completely legalize marijuana. I'm fascinated. I don't smoke weed. I mean, it's not, I'm you know not a college kid anymore, but I'm fascinated from an economic perspective what that's going to do to a country in terms of taxing it, taking money away from the black market, and saving countless amounts of money that's currently spent incarcerating people for you know simple marijuana. Expenses. What is the potential economic impact of, of something like that there? And then the harder question is, and what does that do to the United States?
1: So, Canada produces actually a lot of marijuana. Oh, really? It's one of their it's one of their bigger crops.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, and uh, and so it'll be it'll be very interesting. Now there is a lot of data which suggests that if you smoke, or I guess now you can eat marijuana, and uh-huh. um, under the age of 25 but certainly it really is very very bad for you so bad for
0: brain development brain for a whole bunch of different things precisely
1: so unless they can manage that part of it which i think will be challenging
0: well um, they they do a pretty good job with that with alcohol and with cigarettes certainly with 21. you know you're not keeping weed away from kids today regardless so and they have to be smarter about labeling gummy bears so it doesn't look like candy and that sort of stuff. I mean, when we look at Colorado and uh, Seattle and California, they've all done a pretty mediocre job. It's kind of, hey, it's a case of first impression. They eventually figured out if you make the stuff look like candy and leave it around, guess what? Kids are going to eat it. Right. But, you know, they've kind of all learned that lesson already. So
1: assuming Canada addresses that part of it and Mm -hmm. handles it well— Um, then it's, like you said, the the benefit is twofold, right? And I don't know the size of the market in Canada or their incarceration rate for this sort of thing. But you get rid of the cost of incarcerating, so then you have more people in your labor force, Right. right? So that's always a good thing when we have these population declines. And then you also have the economic benefit of this industry. And if we base it on the rest of the sin industry, right? It's pretty
0: large. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the economy today. And there are so many different things we could go over. I have to start with the issue of the Federal Reserve tightening, normalizing. First, what, what should we call what the Federal Reserve is doing?
1: Well, they're definitely raising rates, mm-hmm. so they're tightening. Okay. They're selling assets off of their balance sheet.
0: Are they selling them or are they letting them just roll off when they Both. mature?
1: My understanding is they're doing both. That is, in effect, a tightening. Now, there's a debate about this. Right. Right? Is it the stock of the Fed's balance sheets that is the size of the balance sheet? Or is it the flow that is the change? Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, the Fed thinks it's the stock. Wall Street thinks it's the flow. The Fed might end up being right, or I think the Fed is being proven correct, because we look at 10-year yields, and they're much lower than they were, for example, in 2014. But that's due to a confluence of factors.
0: Are you surprised that Wall Street looks at the flow as opposed to the balance sheet? That's how the street gets paid. So of course, that's what matters to them. There's a little classic confirmation bias. So what about the idea of the Fed isn't so much tightening as we're still at very accommodative rates, and they're just getting off their emergency footing. This is really normalization.
1: So I went back and looked at ten, real 10 year yields, mm-hmm. right, over the last four decades. Average is about 2%. Obviously, there's wide variations, but the average is about 2%. We're so, in other words, when you, when to, we you are say close real. To real adjusted for inflation. Right. 10 year yields. We are now at almost zero.
0: So, still very common. We are
1: very, it's by that metric, we are still pretty accommodating
0: emergency footing there's really no other way to d- to describe that I, by the way i find myself having to always define real because some people anytime i mention real i always want the audience to hear after inflation after inflation adjusted let's talk about the yield curve historically an inverted yield curve was a sign of an impending uh, recession not immediately but a year or two later and a lot of people are all uh, up in arms over the flattening yield curve as the Fed is tightening. What What do you think about what's taking place in that part of the curve?
1: So a few things. One is we may very well be a year and a half away from the next recession. Uh, that is That is very possible. But you also have to look at what's going on globally in terms of central bank balance sheets. So... If we look globally right now, we have $14 trillion of central bank balance sheets. Now, the Fed is about 4.5, 4.3, I think, to Mm -hmm. be exact. Trillion. Trillion. And so, we have the Bank of Japan and the ECB both with significant balance sheets. So, just to put this in context, the Fed's balance sheet is 23% of the U.S. economy the ecb balance sheet is 38% of the e- of the european economy the eu economy um, or i'm sorry the the monetary union mm-hmm. part right and japan's balance sheet is 91% of gdp the bank of japan's balance sheet so these are very very significant amounts of capital and they're influencing bond markets all over the world but especially the 10 year yield
0: so let's, let's talk about that. You have the United States, which really seemed to get hit by the financial crisis first, and then it spread globally. Um, and you also have the United States as the first to really aggressively respond to the financial crisis, and then Japan and then Europe. Is it, How unusual is it to have the three major economic centers um, of the world, plus China, all sort of out of phase with each other in terms of, economic, fiscal, and especially monetary policy.
1: Well, yes, it's both the monetary and the fiscal. I think that's really important because Europe did fiscal tightening after the Great Recession.
0: Austerity right into the teeth of of collapse. Turns out, not an especially great uh, policy.
1: Well, that and then the ECB raised rates prematurely, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And, And that coincided with the Greek crisis and sort of spilled over into widening bond yields in Italy, in Spain, Portugal, Ireland. Um, now, a lot of these economies have come out the other side, right? Or they're, they're on the upswing. So really since Draghi did his whatever-it-takes speech in 2014, right. and since they really started growing the balance sheet, you've seen consecutive months of jobs growth. Right. You've seen consumption You've seen bank lending expand. I mean, to get to negative rates to do it, but you still saw bank lending expand, and that's helped give the European economies legs. But like you said, they're not synchronized with the, and the fiscal and the fiscal austerity has waned, right? So they've they've moved through that. So I would say they're maybe two or three years behind us in terms of the business cycle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you look at Japan,
0: how about in terms of the monetary cycle? How far are they behind the U.S.? that is sort of coming off its I uh, would
1: say I would say about 2 years behind. And what Maybe about 18 Japan? month 18 months to 2 years. Well, Japan is its own special case. And it's its <laughs> yeah. own special case because its demographics are so much worse. Terrible. Right? So they their working age population began to decline in 1993, which was right about the time their debt bubble burst.
0: Right. 89 90. What was the peak in the, of the Nikkei I 89? It, I
1: think it was 89. Yeah. Um and so it took a little while for the debt bubble to fully burst. And then they, of course, have uh, longevity. So you have people living in retirement for longer. So that's a drag fiscally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also disinflationary or deflationary.
0: It's that damn healthy lifestyle and, and low red meat diet that's that right. uh, is right—is causing that, that issue. And almost zero immigration. Uh, so it's ze- a fairly, zero immigration. fairly uniform society and culture.
1: But even with that said, 2010 is the year that, European, that Europe's uh, working age population started to decline. Oh, really? And our working age population is merely growing at a slower rate. Mm-hmm. So we're growing at 0.3% a year. and Which it's is probably
0: nothing, right? Flat? It, yes,
1: absolutely. But it's problematic. But it's, it's definitely better than if it was outright declining like mm-hmm. you have in Japan. So that – and Japan is now declining at a rate of 0.3% per year. And that – puts Japan in a very, very special case. And something that and and, and their debt to GDP ratio is
0: 198%. Nobody else is even close.
1: Nobody else is even close, but I'll tell you something that they're doing. So if you look at the debt held by the public versus the debt held by the central bank, because they have been purchasing so much of the debt, mm-hmm. the debt held by the public has gone down to 120% of debt to GDP
0: down to
1: yes and and I'm glad we introduced the concept of real versus nominal right. before because if you look at their nominal growth rate it is about 200 basis points above their 10-year yield mm-hmm. and that is allowing them to obtain greater and greater fiscal health mm-hmm. so they're using this negative rate policy and this extreme balance sheet example again balance sheet expansion uh, again 91 percent of their GDP all right they're using this to uh, refinance their government debt effectively
0: at a much lower rate. Well, negative rates. Negative rates.
1: So imagine you're a corporation and you're over-indebted and you can't default. But over time, you can refinance your debt with negative rates.
0: Meaning you get paid for your debt. Basically. Which is which is shocking. You know, you you hinted at something I want to expand on because it's so fascinating. When when we talk about the declining labor force, we really have to discuss the falling um, fertility rates and the falling, um, I forgot the replacement percentage, what it's called, just uh, the declining birth rates Mm -hmm. effectively in Japan, in Europe, and up until recently, the United States was marginally positive. I think we just slipped negative also in terms of our birth rate, replacement rate, replacement rate of new births versus deaths. The U.S. population is becoming fairly stable and it's outright shrinking in Europe and Japan. What does this mean for the economy 10, 20, 30 years hence?
1: Yeah. So it's very challenging. And let's not forget China's working age population started to decline this year. Right, because they
0: now, now how much of that has to do with the one child. A lot rule of it has to do with the one child eventually rule. Eventually overturned, right? so they
1: haven't been at replacement rate for decades now. Right. And even though that rule has been overturned, people are not rushing to have more than one child. It's not. It's not like the minute that was overturned. In the next year, you saw a whole bunch of two and three child families. Not spring a baby up, right? boom right away. Right. Now that may change, and they may may need to do things and create incentives for that, mm-hmm. but that it's it's not going to change overnight. Um, and so uh, and then we have South Korea, their working age population started to decline. So this is a phenomenon in a lot of a Global. lot of different places. It's, a, it, it's starting to impact emerging markets as oh, well Oh, really because more mo- in Asia, more in asia x ex, ex India. Uh-huh. than in Latin America or Africa. Because
0: I've thought of this as a developed world issue, not an emerging markets issue. Are you saying that this is even spilling? Fast into that? forward
1: fifteen years and it's gonna be look at Mexico, their birth rates are declining. It's one of the reasons we have there are two reasons we have fewer Mexican immigrants into the US and why the flow has actually the wall, been the other direction. One.
0: First the wall. And then what's the what's the other reason?
1: So as their birth rates have declined They've needed more labor in their own economy mm-hmm. right so there's just fewer people Therefore, to come here are
0: their wages going up or their they wa- actually and their wages people? have been going up a little bit more mm-hmm.
1: so 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 that, not the wall not the wall not so, the wall and we actually have flow the flow has actually gone the other direction for several years right but that's an aside
0: since the financial crisis actually yes
1: since the and which which loops back into when we were talking about housing earlier right right so, Anyway, we are digressing massively here, so but let me get us back on track. Something about so, the
0: the yield curve. I think we started with yes,
1: and and so this these disinflationary or deflationary pressures are also distorting the shape of the yield curve. So you have you have a completely new demographic phenomenon that, aside from a brief period uh, during the Great Depression. When we had a declining working-age population for a little blip of time, mm-hmm. about seven years, um, we have never had before, and we've never. And and while we had that, we did not have the longevity that we're having now. Right. Right. So the combination of these two things is disinflationary.
0: Um, disinflationary, meaning you're not seeing inflation go up, and the rate of inflation is going down. Correct. Not not outright deflationary, just. 5%, 4%, 3%, 2% inflation, or right. 1.5% these days. Right, correct. And So what does that tell us that the future economy looks like? If, if you if you had to draw a conclusion from the disinflation in the system, is that informing us of anything?
1: So I have a few things to say about that. One is that I'm going to introduce the concept of potential GDP. Mm-hmm. So in its simplest form, potential GDP is the sum of the growth rate of the working age population – plus the growth rate of productivity. And historically, if we look back 50 years, we had average working age population growth of 1.6%, average productivity growth of 1.8. Quickly, that gets us to a 3.6% potential GDP. We now have a working age population growth rate of 0.3%. And until recently, productivity during the recovery was averaging 0.8. So that's a 1.1% potential GDP. Now productivity is picked up to 1.5, so that gets us up to about a 1.8% potential GDP, which is the growth rate that you can grow without inducing inflation in the economy. It's that mythical beast equilibrium.
0: Let me ask you a question about productivity, because this is an ongoing um, question that I keep wrestling with, and every time I have an economist in front of me, I, I feel obligated to ask the question in the real world we are all experiencing a massive amount of personal productivity gains software the ability to walk around with with a powerful computer in my pocket that's 10x what the or 100x what the astronauts took to the moon um is an amazing productivity enhancer and i'm not big on facebook so i don't get the productivity killing aspect of it Although I guess Twitter substitutes for that. But in the office, what we're capable of doing in terms of communicating with clients and doing screen shares to show them different charts and documents and this and that, it feels like we're doing so much more with a handful of people versus a hundred people that was required a few years ago. It makes me ask the question, do we have a productivity problem? Or do we have a problem in measuring productivity? It
1: depends on the industry. So in finance, you're in an industry where there's been huge measured productivity gains. Right. So what you're saying makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's what's shown in the data, and it is true for other financial services firms. Mm-hmm. This is something that is puzzling everybody because we can't change the birth rate. So we're only going to get saved by increasing productivity.
0: Although some Nordic countries are actually running PSAs to encourage people to go on vacation in the south of France and leave their um, birth control at home, I mean, there are literally television commercials for that. I don't see that happening here. That said,
1: but that's still a long-term prospect, right? You're still it's 21 okay. years until you see benefit from that, maybe 26, given the current education okay. rates. So it's not an immediate solution, right? Right, we need to do something in the intervening years, and the only savior then is productivity, because so many people are focusing on this. One of the things that the OECD did. Was they did a study on the diffusion of technology throughout firms. So it may be Barry that you guys are really advanced and early adopters of technology.
0: No doubt about that. So, but
1: so, but the diffusion is important. So they looked at the productivity of at the firm level. So not the economy wide level at the firm right. level of the frontier firms. So that's the f- top five percent versus everybody else. And if you look at these graphs, it's really alarming. The gap is really really wide, and it's wider in services than it is in manufacturing. Makes sense? Yes. And 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 the question is, will we get to a point where this gap closes? Like what is the cause of this lack of diffusion? And and is there a tipping point where we can start to see wider diffusion?
0: Meaning that a handful of firms are especially productive and the rest of the economic force, um, or firms and businesses, are lagging in productivity
1: Yeah, or gains. really not reaping the rewards of the technological advances we've had over the last 15 you years.
0: Know, there is a have and have not way of structuring or looking at just about every aspect of our economy. It is so bifurcated and that duality exists in so many places, it's fascinating. I had never um, heard of the this diffusion between productivity, but I guess it makes some some sense because you would think the early adapters of technology and other productivity enhancers would see not only a gain, but a giant differential against their competitors who aren't adopting the newest technology.
1: We're actually studying this at KPMG, so we're taking the OECD work and mm-hmm. we're expanding it and and building a knowledge database of a multitude of different firms across different countries, across different sectors. And um, hopefully we'll have some research out on that in the next six to nine
0: months. We have been speaking with Constance Hunter. She is the chief economist at KPMG. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things economic. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column. It's on bloombergview.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Constance. Thank you so much for doing this. I have been looking forward to this for a while. I give economists a lot of grief for for both making terrible predictions or, or predictions that turn out not to be accurate and for the most part missing the financial crisis which we talked about earlier. You're not big into making a lot of predictions. I don't really I see you more as analyzing the situation than doing the usual Wall Street forecast. So, I have to ask why are economists so bad at making forecasts, and, and how did they miss the financial crisis?
1: Well, and you probably also know that I didn't miss the financial crisis. That's right. That's correct. So I was short a lot of things uh, that went down.
0: Which is always fun. Which
1: was, it's, it's actually nerve-wracking, to be honest with you, and people give you so much grief for it. Totally. I remember when I first started shorting UBS and— Oh, they have this activist investor in there. You don't know what you're doing. It's gonna go up, blah blah, blah blah blah, and you know you're constantly second guessing yourself more so on a short than a long, right? Because the nature of things is to go up for the most part over the long over, over the long-, long term. And everybody that works at a company, their entire goal is to make everything go up. Right. They're, they're they're they make new plan every year. They're right. they're incentivizing their employees. They're cutting costs. Like every single company is focused on that as well. And so that is the nature of things. So it's very nerve-wracking to be short. But nevertheless... Um, that
0: and the theoretical infinite losses kind of hangs over your head a little bit. That
1: and the theoretical infinite losses or the actual infinite losses that can occur. People have, uh, you know... What's that What's that famous Keynes expression? The market can re- remain irrational a lot longer than you can remain solvent? For sure. So, so in answering your question, mm-hmm. I think it is because of several things. First, models... I've been working on shocking my model to give it a recession because Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to see some labor shortages, that those labor shortages are going to cause wage increases, that those wage increases are going to push up inflation, that that increase in inflation, increase in prices will reduce demand, that reduction in demand will help spur us into the next recession, plus – As wages go up, as there are shortages, we're going to get to a point, I would imagine, where you can't find someone at any price. And so you want to expand your business, but you just can't. At any price. Well, there's some professions where we just, for example, let's all this technology. Right. We, you can't find data scientists at any price. There's a handful of them. There's a handful of programmers that are really top notch. And so everybody is competing in this space for the same talent. And it's a very new set of skills.
0: So isn't that just temporary? Aren't we going to see more people come in from India and China and more graduate degrees and People moving into the space just because it's so lucrative? Sure.
1: But that doesn't mean that we're going to see shortages of that labor over the next couple of years, right? right? It takes time for those people right. to get trained and for people to move into a profession.
0: Decade-long and, process, for sure. Le- it,
1: yeah. Six years, de- a decade, something like that. So the first thing is that it. what I had to do to shock this model, because it just kind of bump-a-dump goes along on trend. And- and it would never forecast a recession unless you made it forecast a mm. recession, right? So you have to look for tipping points. The, so there were there were three things that allowed me to call the the financial crisis. And of course, I didn't call it as big as it ended up being, right? Because that was just large. But I've done this my whole career. I, the same with Russia crisis, right? right? So so the thing that allowed me to call the financial crisis was I was looking at mortgage equity withdrawal, Which
0: and was giant.
1: Well, not only was it giant, but if you look historically, it used to be a random walk around Mm -hmm. $150 a quarter. It would go up, we'd go down, basically a random walk. You couldn't – there was no way to predict
0: it. It was a modest number that practically in in the U.S. $15 trillion economy is a rounding error.
1: But also its pattern was – Was some some quarters were up, some were down. It was a random walk. It wasn't like it was 150 billion every quarter got withdrawn. It was up and down.
0: Wasn't on trend the way it became.
1: Right. So we started withdrawing more and withdrawing more and withdrawing more to the point where we had withdrawn three and a half trillion dollars. Amazing. And and you could just see that this there's no way it could keep going. There was just no. It made no sense. It made absolutely no sense. And then, if you look at the demographics, that made no sense either, because you could see that the working-age population started to decline in 2000. So you could see it shifting demographic demand, if you were looking for it, right? But you have to be open and searching for the things that are going to be inflection points, and then you have to have the conviction to shock your model.
0: In other words, come up with some set of exogenous or or maybe normal economic shifts that tip uh, an economy into a recession or or
1: or into a big growth period as well Mm -hmm. um so so i think you have to be willing to look for those things and 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 understand inflection points but that is not the way most people study economics necessarily and i'm fortunate that i have this pattern recognition skill combined with a lifetime of investing that has honed that that skill.
0: So the other question I didn't get to that I have to ask you about, we really haven't touched upon China. And let's talk a little bit about China for a moment. What do you see going on in China? Is it a growth area? Is it a risk? Does China become the biggest economy by far, just extrapolating trends out for forever? What is the role of China in the modern economy?
1: So- China is a big economy. Uh, it's the same size as the U.S. Obviously, their population is much larger, so their per capita GDP is smaller. Mm-hmm. So they're big, but they're not rich, right? Right? They're not but first that's... world economy. Obviously, the coasts are rich. You have multiple chi- because it's so large. You have many different Chinas, right? But if we just think about that for a second, their sheer size um, makes them an amazing market. And if we think about it in the context of what's happening with Uh, artificial intelligence and data and analytics, you have huge amounts of of data there, um, which is an interesting uh, situation given our modern focus on platform companies and and um, the network effect, right? So you have that sort of on steroids in China, and it's interesting to watch. However, like any economy, imbalances develop, and China is still a command economy it is not let's not mistake it for a market economy it has some features of a market economy but it has many more features of a command economy
0: they're essentially planned communist regime that seems to dabble in capitalism precisely okay so i just had to touch upon that because i know it's it's such a fascinating area
1: so i think china is gonna see some bumps in the road that are gonna surprise people over the next two to three years
0: do those bumps in the road have the potential to tip any major economies into a recession?
1: Yeah, I think they might. And and so if you look back at 2014, right, we were at three percent almost on the ten year. Mm-hmm. If you use the um, PMI index, seventy nine percent of the world was growing. Right. And if you look at what happened in China, China's demand shifted downward. And so what I look at, uh, I look at a whole host of- And we
0: saw that across commodities especially. Well,
1: especially. And so if you look at China's imports and you use the OECD data, and this is important because they get the real real number, not the nominal number, because obviously for commodities, there's a huge fluctuation in nominal price changes. And they compile the data using all of China's trading partners. So they don't rely on the Chinese data collection. Right. And this is important because we all know that there are some question marks around China's data collection.
0: They make Bernie Madoff look like he was actually using real numbers. that That's what you can't say, but I can say. You,
1: I cannot say that. <laughs> so in any case, um, what we saw was a big year-over-year year, year year decline in imports in 2015. Mm-hmm. And this impacted all of the commodity producers, Australia, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, you name it. And we fell to only 61% of the PMI reporting countries experiencing growth.
0: Hmm. So let's, in the last. And 70- so it had
1: a massive impact, I guess. So, and to answer your question, it could have a very significant impact on global liquidity and global demand.
0: All right. So, now in our remaining minutes, let's jump to our favorite questions. Tell us about the most important thing people don't know about your background.
1: So, this is a tough
0: question to answer, Barry. I know. I like I it. I mean, it's one steep. question is. You know, Genos or Pats? I can ask you that. But Pats. give us okay. So that could be. But and, I bet everybody knows. And wit,
1: that. not without.
0: Okay, so that's see, easy. If you,
1: if you know about Philadelphia, I'm you're really know curious what we're to see if
0: people email what the hell was she talking about.
1: Yeah, you, you can Google. There's an NPR story about this, wit or without.
0: With uh, and Pats, got it. So, so
1: I think people don't uh, know because it's been some time has passed that I used to uh, invest in the former Soviet Union. I have traveled all over the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I've been a mile underground in the real nickel mine.
0: Really? Yeah. See, I, now I look at the Soviet Union as an organized crime family with a standing army attached. Is that is that an exaggeration or?
1: Well, back when I was there, it was in the hopeful days of Glasnost and right. Perestroika, right? Um Yeltsin was was president. Uh-huh. Uh he was it, it was trying to reform now was there some corruption? Yes. Some. Were there were there <laughs> oligarchs? Most definitely. Um Are
0: you surprised at the way Russia has changed to under Putin?
1: Not really. Not no. as I wish, expected. I wish I you know when he first came so Yeltsin handpicked him, which is interesting.
0: That's shocking.
1: Yeah. And 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 Putin came into power and let Yeltsin live, like, and just as <laughs> that was it, well, nice of him. Well, you know, pre-Gorbachev, this was not the way of, right. of Soviet tra- power transition or Russian power transition. So
0: he was a drunk old man at that point, though, wasn't he? It was
1: pretty harmless, um, but you could tell that it was a very different approach, a very, very different approach. And remember, they had they were just coming off the default and devaluation. Right. Right. Uh, Oil was at about $20 a barrel. So we had to do something to get the economy going and to do things. And and coming off of that crisis and what happened in his first decade in power really improved people's lives. So the loyalty that he has among Russians who remember that time period is very, very high.
0: Some people have said that he is actually the wealthiest man in the world and he's worth $300 billion. I
1: have heard that from a lot of reliable sources. Really?
0: So it's not Bezos. Bezos is number two. That's fascinating. Um, Early mentors. Tell us about some of your early mentors.
1: So I think my earliest mentor was probably my father, Mm -hmm. who uh, had me uh, calculate Saber metrics, and For baseball, yeah, learned so that's how I learned statistics. Huh, that's he, fascinating. He, he would, he would. This is back when people would read the Wall Street Journal and look at all the stock uh, right. metrics on the back of the, the back pages of the journal. So he taught me what a PE was and dividends. This is
0: pre Moneyball.
1: Pre Moneyball. This is the '70s. So
0: you were literally doing this with baseball stats or with with, with Wall baseball Street? stats? No, right. with baseball
1: stats. 1976 Philadelphia Phillies World Series. Uh-huh.
0: Raleigh fingers. That's right. That's right. I remember that. I'm um, old enough to remember that's,
1: that. That is impressive. You're going to have more Googling and more more questions. Uh, oh, that
0: mustache. Who can forget that mustache? Right.
1: Um, and then I had really amazing professors at Columbia. So uh, we had a, a class that was taught by two uh, gentlemen who were at George Soros, Running Money for George at the time. <laughs> right. And so it was Arminio Fraga uh-huh. and Robert Johnston. Robert Johnson is now with INET, Institute for New Economic Thinking, and Arminio Fraga went on to be the head of Brazil's Central Bank, and then has uh, started a fund called Gavia, I think. Um, It's been around for, for a decade or more. So these were two people who really, it was a little confirmation bias on my part, but they really solidified this idea that you need to read widely on a lot of different subjects. You need to be a student of history. You need to be a student of people. You need to... Understand as many different financial crises as you possibly can. So this was right after the uh, Nordic banking crisis, mm-hmm. right? So we were delving into what what was the cause of that Nordic banking crisis. Um, so it was it was th- those were two really just um, big big thinkers who had a very strong influence on the way I practice economics and the way I invest.
0: So I've interviewed almost 175 people here. I can't tell you how often the issue of being well-rounded, being well-read comes up over and over and over again from people, uh, and if you read what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and uh, Howard Marks has said this and Cliff Asness has said this and Bill McNabb of Vanguard, time and time and time again people say, if you are not well-rounded, well-read, if you're just focused in a tiny niche within finance, you won't be able to do that job well, because you need to be outside of that specialty in order to develop skills in that specialty, which lead me to everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books and, and what you're reading now.
1: Okay, so I am actually rereading a book that was my mother's book called The Worldly Philosophers, which is... I know that book. Yes, it's a great book about all of the sort of Foremost economists that are the basis of economic theory, right? So Adam Smith, Keynes. Um, uh, I think that he has a chapter on Veblen. Uh, so Heilbronner. Heilbronner. Yep. yep. Amazingly. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great it's a great book. And then, uh, I love reading biographies and I love reading autobiographies. Give us give us some so, of your favorite biographies. So one There's my, a
0: few great ones around. Oh,
1: now. there are many great ones. So one of one of my favorite biographies that I read a long time ago was called West with the Night by Beryl Markham. West Mar- West with the Night. It's by huh. Beryl Markham. And she was a, a female pilot in uh, East Africa in the thirties and she made money taking people on hunting trips.
0: Beryl Markham.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great it's a great book. And um, one of the things that she talked about in the book uh, was how the elephants would know that the planes were coming and that it meant that they were going to be shot. And they would literally take she talks about how the um, the largest female elephant, would often hide with her head in a tree. So you couldn't see if it was a male or female. You couldn't see the tusks. Uh-huh. While the whole rest of the herd, including the bull, would go off away from where the plane was. And then when they were far enough away, the female elephant would bring her head out, and they would be circling above, kind of waiting and waiting. And it turns out it was the female and not the bull. And they want and then the they bull with the tusks. They want the bull with the tusks, and now they had lost the herd. Oh, and so this, this intelligence that these animals possess and just the way she tells the story. And, and so I just think, again, to go back to your point of being well-rounded and, and the different ways that people think creatively and the different life mm-hmm. experiences and things you can learn, it's just endless.
0: Any other modern, any modern biographies you're looking at or want to want to read? What have I read?
1: Recently? I have a giant
0: stack of things. I'm dying. To get I to.
1: my reading list. I, I, cons- I purchase at a much greater rate than I could possibly ever read.
0: I I call that the um bought to read ratio. I actually <laughs> the bought to read
1: ratio. I'm I at about actually, ten to one. <laughs> Maybe actually, I'm at twenty to one. I
0: actually went back and l- made a list of everything I purchased in the previous year, and then how much I read. And you end up with like a three to one ratio. For every three books you've bought this year, you've probably read one. Oh, or I'm at
1: like definitely that. at ten to one. So I'm definitely at because 10 to every one. Year, I, I... so
0: twice a year I do. Here's my favorite books for the winter. Here's my summer books, and in the fall I said, you know what? Let me just go to my bookshelf and pick ten books that I want to read that I haven't read that are sitting there. And it's embarrassing. It's like, how have I not read this? So I have... It's
1: a first world problem, though, Barry.
0: It's, it's a, a very good first, first world, world problem. problem.
1: It's a very good first world I, problem. I have
0: though. a... So I'll give you th- three. I'm going to reference. Okay. So I have I have Grant, I have Springsteen, and I have Galileo on my bookshelf.
1: Oh, I want to read Springsteen's biography.
0: Let me get to my last two questions, my favorite two questions, that I have to ask you because you and I keep digressing. Um... So a millennial comes to you and they say they're thinking of a career in finance or a recent college graduate, what sort of advice would you give them?
1: Okay, so you need to have rapacious curiosity.
0: Rapacious curiosity. Yes,
1: and you need to indulge your curiosity. You need to read, you need to learn, you need to really enjoy finding out about the world. It helps if you are doing something you are infinitely curious about. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're not curious about it, you're not going to be engaged. You're not going to love it, and and y- you can't only do what you love. Every job has has parts that are that are annoying or tedious. So you need to do those too. You need to do what I call play the scales. Right. So it doesn't matter. So play the scales. Just learn
0: the basics
1: and practice the basics over and over and over again. So um, I, I still go and make my own graphs sometimes by hand. I, well, not by hand. no, in Haver analytics. But I still go in and 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 immerse myself in the data, do my own uh, e views calculations just because it keeps your you you keep your your fingers in the dirt, so to speak. Um, and then I would say, get in before the boss and leave after the boss. Wow.
0: all right. And the last question that uh, our favorite question, what is it that you know about economics and investing today that you wish you knew twenty years ago when you started?
1: Everything. So the knowing just the amount of knowledge you have and how that becomes cumulative, it's it's so valuable. And, and knowing the history, just having it at your fingertips, having experienced, you know, having experienced crisis. So when I experienced the Russia crisis and I, as we were approaching the dot-com crisis and Fed was raising rates, I said, you know what? I think I've seen this movie before. I think I know how this is probably going to end, right? And so every – Every experience becomes cumulative, and it helps you if you let it.
0: We have been speaking with Constance Hunter. She is the chief economist at KPMG. If you enjoy this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 175 such podcasts we have recorded previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff that helps to put this together. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker. Medina Parwana is our recording producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. And Atika Valbrun is our business director. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.